views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters. Good day. You are listening to Ability Radio. I am one of your hosts, Amelia Headley Lamont of the Disability Rights Center of the Virgin Islands. And today we're going to talk about a very important law in the world of disability advocacy, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, Our special guest today is a staunch advocate and uh, a teacher, really, to our organization with regard to Americans with Disabilities Act advocacy, and his name is Jim Harrington. Good day, James Harrington. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. How are you all? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us. Um, I am so honored and pleased and excited based upon, you know, I, I, this is like a throwback to the Wayback Machine because you came to our um, organization back in 1997, and it was as a result of um, you uh, suggesting that um, our office and other protection and advocacy organizations throughout the United States um, consider a campaign to promote um, your rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so I, uh, I thought it was a great idea, and our office started an eight-week litigation campaign. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and what was the brainchild behind it? Well, you know, this is one of those things where the brainchild just happens because of what we're doing. (laughs) But the idea was to go around the country and set up ADA campaigns. And they would be, you know, of a duration of like eight weeks, like you all did, or maybe longer, maybe shorter. But, But the idea was to focus on different parts of the community that were inaccessible. And to do it through a press conference and some litigation at the same time, uh, not only to uh, go after and make places accessible that were being sued, but also as a way of community education and as a way of telling others who are not compliant with the ADA that they might be next. So it had that public education component, that carrot and stick approach to it, but it also, I found it really fascinating and uh, really, really a great honor to work with the disability community and watch how people got involved in this and to have them at the press conference talking, telling their stories right. uh, to the larger community. So, uh, and we did all kinds of, of uh, I, I can't imagine, I think in Texas alone, we did 50 of these in, in my tenure at the Civil Rights Project. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes just focused on certain things like uh, not having interpreters at medical facilities, for example, or government buildings that were inaccessible or uh, trial proceedings that were inaccessible or restaurants or grocery stores, you know, or Mm -hmm. gas pumps. So there would be specific uh, uh, targets. And the idea was that, you know, the the message would get out, but also we looked for the larger targets that we could find because usually that meant they had more than one facility. And correcting that one also meant that they would correct all the other ones. So it was was a really uh, great, uh, I think, method. 
you know, the idea sort of started with ADAPT of Texas. You know, we held a press conference in the Capitol Rotunda mm -hmm. at the beginning, and then just sort of picked up from there and developed this as we went along and had a lot of input from the disability community. So I think it worked really well, uh, for sure. Oh, it was great. And, it, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was great. There were three heroes involved, at least in the Virgin Islands, that I would like to you know recognize, and that is Sonny Barnes, uh, Carmen Huertas, and Jamil Muhammad. And um, it was, a, as you said, Jim, it was a very empowering moment for the disability community to be, you know, to have that partnership. You know what I mean? Yeah, very much. Yeah. You know, and, I, and that was part of the agenda, too. And I saw this happen. Uh, manifest itself in El Paso. So we did, the, the disability community in El Paso was very active. We did campaigns and kinds of all kinds of litigation. But it empowered the community so that when the county was getting around to allocate how much public housing there would be for people with disabilities, uh, the disability community went and said, we want more than the statutory minimum, which I think at that time was 12%. Mm -hmm. And they ended up with 20%. Wow. Because of that empowering that went on. Right. You know, and their presence in the community. Right. And and that ultimately, of course, is our goal always is to empower uh, the community. Right. Right. Yeah. Then in the Virgin yeah. Islands, we had an eight week litigation campaign. And we also, in partnership with the media, our local media, and in particular, um, Alvin G., he would come to each of these press conferences that we called. And Jamil Muhammad would come up, would open up the press conference with um, a, a poem. And, you know, one of my favorites had to do with the, the banks. Another one had to do with restaurants. And he, he had one called during the week, week five. We had a restaurant week. He says, the menu is great. A taste but escape. Delectable treats, a serious feast, steaks and chops, seafood and pasta, stir-fried veggies and callaloo, pastries and tarts, carrot cake, ice cream, key lime pie on the menu, fast food, slow food, cruisin' and more food, taste buds excited. Want to begin? No parking, no ramps, no curb cuts and steps. How in the world are we to get in? If you're sitting at the table and your plate is empty, can you call yourself a diner? If you're sitting outside the restaurant because you can't get in, what do you call that? The haves, the have-nots, the disabled, the federal government calls it discrimination. And we all know that it is unacceptable behavior. Our reply is a five-course menu in court. We will survey, we will consolidate, we will implicate, we will litigate, and have the court adjudicate. And for dessert, you can pay the court costs. Bon appetit. I mean, so it had that kind of, you know, edginess, but also it just gave, like you suggested, Jim, it talks about lived experience and what it's like to not have a seat at the table in any context. And That's so, a wonderful, wonderful poem. <laughs> you know, he had a lot of gems, and we saved them because, um, you know, it, it again, it was just a way in which... <sighs> You can describe what it's like, you know, to not have services or, you know, uh, the ability to even be heard. And then that's when we took the opportunity to announce to the press who was being sued for that particular week. So it was that kind of partnership. And this was, you know, the brainchild of Texas, Texas Civil Rights Project. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you all uh, did a great job with it. I know it was, uh, I, I think that technique of doing the poem is really clever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it, it gets people to listen to yes. where you're going with it. Yes. Yes. And so every week, thank you. It was an eight week campaign and it started off with, you know, something for each week. So, you know, um, and it, it, it piqued people's curiosity, you know, as, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, we actually would have press call a couple of days ahead of time. Say, right. Who's the target? <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going to be next? Right. You got to keep that close to your chest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So no, it was, it was a great, uh, it was a great adventure, you know, and particularly that empowering the people, I think was so good. Right. Right. Now, now you also, um, have been doing a lot of work with regard to, um, what immigration issues and, and the like, um, Tell us a little bit yeah. about what the Texas Civil Rights Project was also involved in. Oh, man, I got to tell you the story. So we had a VAWA program. Mm-hmm. Violence Against uh, Women Act, right? In our various offices. Mm-hmm. And VAWA is a very good protective statute for women. But there is a provision that if somebody brings a, a, a spouse into the country illegally mm-hmm. and then begins to abuse her, uh, that she can't actually separate uh, she and the kids get a work permit and eventually work towards uh, citizenship. It was a wonderful program to get to help get free women mm-hmm. from really oppressive physical and psychological abuse. Mm-hmm. So here's the story. So I'm writing a memoir right now about my work with the Texas Civil Rights Project, and I'm trying to focus on the clients. So I, I go down to Mexico for a week. Mm-hmm. Gets secluded and right. Of course, that's a good excuse to be near the beach. <laughs> so, on the way back, I'm in Houston, getting ready to come to Austin, and this woman walks up to me. She says, "I can't remember your first name, but you're Harrington, right?" Wow. And I thought, "Oh man, you know, here we go. I'm going to get trashed out by somebody again, you know, for my work." Mm-hmm. And she says, "I was a VAWA client in 2009." Oh wow. You all got me free from my husband who was choking me to death oh, wow. when the police came. I am now a school driver, school bus driver to the district. Wow. My youngest daughter is studying forensics at Texas State University. My oldest daughter is now a doctor in Guatemala. Wow. And I am a citizen. I filled out my own papers. Wow. And sh- then she showed me her passport. So I just came back from visiting my mother in Mm -hmm. Guatemala that I had not been able to do for 20 years. Oh my goodness. And you know, it was, it was just very wonderful, but it was also very typical Mm -hmm. of the cases that we handled just awful gut wrenching, heartbreaking cases. But it gave these immigrant women who were brought in, you know, and, and, you know, they'd be threatened, you know, if you call, call the police, we're going to get you deported. I'm going to get you deported. I'm going to keep the kids, all right. of that kind of stuff. Right. You know, that went on. And so I love that program, you know. Yeah. yeah. And we and we did other immigration things, too. I mean, we did, had other cases. We didn't handle immigration cases individually, except right. for the VAWA. Why? Because they're, they're very complicated and they go on forever. But anytime we could approach a, a systemic issue, Mm-hmm. We did that. Wow. For example, one of the cases right before I uh, retired from the project, mm-hmm. the 
county counties were refusing to register the births of kids of undocumented women in the United States. Oh, my goodness. And the Constitution is very clear. All you have to do is be born in the country and you're a citizen. Correct. But they were not registering the births, which then put those kids at risk of deportation hmm. because they didn't have any way of proving that they were actually born in the U.S. and citizens of the U.S. Now, how cold-hearted can you get? Right. Uh, but, you know, I think our lawsuits have a way of uh, cracking cold-hearted people. <laughs> and that's, sure. that's what we did. We had a wonderful alliance with the Mexican consul. Uh -huh. You know, of course, we totally upset about this whole thing. Of course. Of course. That's, that's an example of an immigration systemic change case that, that, uh, that we did. And there were a couple others, but. Well, you, uh, I want to make sure we also bring out, uh, Jim, that you also did a lot of work with the United Farm Workers, right? You were, you worked with Cesar Chavez and, um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that's. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a lot of fun. So I actually worked with Cesar for 18 years. Mm -hmm. So my first stint in Texas, um, was, uh, 10 years along the border working with the United Farm Workers and organizing. And so I got to represent, meet with Cesar a number of times for 18 years. It was mm -hmm. really wonderful. But my first meeting with him, this is really great. <laughs> so uh, he's coming to, uh, we had conventions every year from the different colonias would send delegations, different farm worker, colonias or residential areas. So they would all elect representatives and we'd have a convention. So he came for the first one. <laughs> and so I arranged a meeting with him and some volunteer lawyers saturday morning and i remember it was a cold day because it was unusual that we had cold days in south texas and he starts off the meeting by saying you know i really don't like dealing with lawyers <laughs> and i thought well that's pretty impolitic <laughs> but he went on to say you know the problem with lawyers is that they're always telling me the union why we can't do stuff hmm. instead of covering us when we do do stuff or telling us how we can do stuff. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want lawyers that the model is the union model and that's si se puede. Yeah, mm -hmm. it can be done, you know? And so that was a very instructive lesson for me. Yeah. You know, that uh, uh, this is what I think lawyers ought to be doing, particularly in the movement is how do we make things happen and how do we bend the law when we need to bend? Right. For in the... fact, we took that model, si se puede, mm -hmm. for the Texas Civil Rights Project. Ah, okay. And one time I was talking to our South Texas director, <coughs> Karina. I said, Karina, we've got to figure out how to do this. And she said, I know, I know. I'm si se puede all over the place. <laughs> so we, we turned it into a verb, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but that was our commitment. How do we get this done? For people in the audience who may not be familiar with the work of the United Farm Workers, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, their their struggle? Yeah, so, you know, if you want to look at people that work really, really hard and get paid really, really low and have very bad working conditions, mm. it's the farm workers. Right. And they are, as the COVID designation went, essential workers. I mean, we depend on them, of course, to put foot on our table. Right. But historically, they've been totally and immorally 
uh, oppressed, and you can't and exploit it because the people that do the crops have to come in from Mexico and South because the Americans won't do it. It's such, such hard work, Americans won't do it. Right. And the way we have historically treated them is just pathetic and continues to be that way. And so the role of the United Farm Workers was to unionize workers so they could collectively bargain with the growers. And that started off with a uh, international grape boycott, which right. finally forced the grape growers into negotiations. And the workers began to get better wages and uh, working conditions, you know, and medical coverage and even some retirement stuff that we all take it for advantage. Right. But it still hasn't reached uh, only a very small part of the uh, farm worker population, uh, primarily because federal law does not protect farm workers in most situations. But so it's been quite a struggle. And, you know, just imagine this. Part of the struggle was to get portable toilets out in the fields. Wow. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's what we, um, that's what we worked on and are still working on. Right. So when was the Texas Civil Rights Project uh, founded, so to speak? When did that get off the ground? It was founded two months after the ADA became effective, 1990. Oh, oh right. And so we jumped right in. Mm-hmm. We jumped right in. Wow. And then the PNA <clears throat> offered me a job, a part-time, to train their lawyers mm-hmm. and the staff, you know, and out of that is where we get the uh, these campaigns that we've been discussing. Oh, all right. But it was a way to help fund the TCRP in the beginning because we didn't have very much money. So everything is just amazing to me how many fortuitous steps uh, occur along the line that get you to where you are. That's right. One of the other poems, if I may, is is one that Jamil did having to do with hotels during week six of the campaign. He calls it, he did a poem called No Room at the Inn. And it says, this is not a new story from days of glory. They say there's no room at the inn. So for tourists and locals, we all must beware of the hazards of just checking in. No disabled parking or ramps near the steps. The counters and phones are too high. The bathroom's too small. No rails in the stalls. ADA, most hotels don't comply. So again to the courts, legal briefings and torts to obtain our own civil rights. You can have the court costs for being the boss and the hotels can leave on the lights. After 2,000 years, there's still no room at the inn. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Awesome. That is so awesome. (laughs) You know. That is so awesome. So I, you know, it 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 gave it gave me goosebumps because we didn't know what Jamil Muhammad was going to come up with. Again, that was yeah. his way of saying, "Okay, here is my take on this particular week with this particular group of defendants." And, um, you know, I I am so grateful that you know early in my tenure as as director to have had this collaborative process. It was very very empowering for all concerned. You know, yeah, the community and for for us as is practitioners, and you know, Jim, we I mean, never had to go to that, trial for any of it. Yeah, no, that is absolutely true. You know, that's how we lawyers learn to live into the community, right? You know, right, and be part of that struggle. You right. know, I I totally agree. You know that this was a 
a uh, learning experience both ways. Yep. It was an empowering experience both ways, you know. Right. And uh, together, following the lead of the disability community, made a lot of changes. Yeah. And that community everywhere has come out ahead in terms of of its power, I would say, its political uh, power. Right. And, you know, I you see that, I think, in the widespread acceptance of disability law mm -hmm. in the public, mm -hmm. in a way that other civil rights laws are not accepted mm. totally by the public. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason, of course, is that disability cuts across everything, you know, economic, race, ethnicity, right. religion. So, and the longer we live, of course, the more likely we are. Right or our parents are, right. you know, to uh, understand that more deeply and more profoundly. Right. No, absolutely true. You know, as you mentioned, a ramp benefits everyone, you know? <laughs> well, absolutely. Does. Yeah. You know, Emilia, I, I may have told you this, but it won't stop me again. <laughs> and that is one of the things that I noticed about doing the ramps at the stores uh -huh. was that the people who are bringing in all these heavy duty carts of beer and all that use the ramp yeah and before that they had you could see it they had to basically you know jack it up onto uh, over that uh, curb yeah. to get it into the store and think how many back injuries occurred because of that or hernias or whatever right right, right. and how this benefits ultimately the whole community right good point you know good point for, for the purpose of inclusion right right uh, we had a case in which my grandson, mm -hmm. at age six months, was the plaintiff. <laughs> okay. And he won his first case. <laughs> and that, and that involved. Now you're. I mean, this stuff gets really bizarre at times. So the state requires that when you're born, the baby, you know, that you have the blood tests, mm -hmm. and they do the test for. At that time, it was twenty-eight diseases or disabilities. Now it's, I think it's up to 42. But what the state of Texas did is it did not destroy the sample after two years, which was the protocol. They kept it. They kept, they stored all these baby blood samples over at Texas A&M in a Quonset hut. Why? And they didn't tell anybody they were doing this at all. It was only a fluke that we found out. Huh. It turned out that what they were doing, and <clears throat> some of this is kind of scary, is that they were sending samples to the military. What? And they were selling samples to pharmaceutical companies. For what? So, well, not that it matters. Why? <laughs> well, that's the question, right? And then why not tell anybody? Right. Hey, we're keeping your kid's blood and we're sending it off to the military. For profit. Or we're, or, yeah, or, or we're going to make some money off of it. Uh -huh. So anyway, we sued over that. And, and of course, I mean, that's blatantly unconstitutional. Right. And so they they had to destroy 51, 5.1 million baby blood samples. Wow. You know, and then they try to blame us. And it's like, you know, if you had done this right in the first place, you get consent from a lot of people. Right. In fact, now there is a consent form that the parents have to sign when going for the baby to be born. Mm -hmm. 
and we we call it the Joaquin, my grandson's name, the Joaquin <laughs> form. <laughs> and you can you can opt <clears throat> to let the state keep your your um, baby's blood. Wow. So um, with certain conditions, you know, that are set out, like it's not going to be sold and all that. So 80% of the people right now will sign that. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're okay mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. you know, being used for scientific purpose. But, and they've, they've given consent. Mm -hmm. And then you've got 20 people that don't want to do it. Sure. For, yeah. Who don't trust the state. I, I, I'm not sure I would sign it either. Right. right. You know? Right. But, you know, this was going on secretly for five years. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting so we did that. That was, a, I think, the big case. But here's another one that I think is really, really big. Mm -hmm. I put it in one of my top three cases. Uh -huh. So we filed a lawsuit to require lawyers to do pro bono work for the poor community. I love it. Yeah. I got more hate mail over this piece of <laughs> litigation anything else i did in my life amazing from lawyers mm -hmm. and after i saw and some of them were handwritten some of them were just awful mm -hmm. and then i was thinking you know there are some lawyers that i probably don't want to inflict pro bono work on clients <laughs> okay but anyway here's here's the story this is this is really an amazing story so the the trial court throws us out says it doesn't have jurisdiction only the supreme court has juris jurisdiction over the bar Mm -hmm. the lawyers it goes up on appeal we win on appeal gets reversed then it goes to the supreme court they flip it back they say we have jurisdiction <clears throat> and what we're going to do we will do something and uh, we're going to put it on our administrative dock and we'll get back in touch with you and in the meantime if anybody want anybody wants to file any briefing with the supreme court do it this was in December. Every December thereafter, I wrote a letter and said, hey, what's going on with the administrative doc? Year six, the clerk says, what administrative doc? Oh, oh, wow. And so a week later, I sued the Supreme Court in federal court. <laughs> and everybody, of course, thinks that was suicidal, but they didn't... Uh, and I told you I was a badass. <laughs> so I'm going to put that on my tombstone. I actually, oh, I'll come back and tell you a story about suing the Supreme Court of Disability. But anyway, this was so embarrassing to the Supreme Court <clears throat> that it actually decided to have a hearing. And my strategy was, you know, all the legal aid directors will be there, you know, talking, 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 talking. But let's bring in some clients. And we brought in a VAWA client from South Texas. And this and is the violence against about, women. Uh, yes, clients. violence against women. And she talked about her case and you couldn't hear a pin drop. Okay. It was so powerful. Wow. Now, Jim, and after we're going to, uh -huh, we're going to have to wrap up and I'm okay. sorry to say, all right, I'm sorry. No, no, anyway, no. Anyway, the net result of that is the Supreme court actually took action, got funding from the legislature continues as part of the court budget. It now goes around the country telling other states how to do it. Excellent. Absolutely amazing. Based upon the leadership of our very own. Folks, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. James Harrington, I hope we can do this again. 
It's fun. It's fun. Thank you, Amelia. It was oh, a pleasure working with you. It's been a it's been a pleasure and an honor. Folks, thank you so much for listening to Ability Radio. Till the next time. Bye-bye. Views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters.